The reading for today is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 12-25, starting at verse 12. Jesus begins to preach. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. As Jesus was walking besides the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee. Preparing their nets, Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their fathers, and they followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and to heal them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, as we come to this account of your Son, Jesus Christ, preaching the good news of the kingdom, your kingdom and his, please would you grant us true repentance and through your Son, the baptism of your Holy Spirit and fire, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. I'd like you to think about the last time you changed your mind about something. Maybe it was something trivial. Uh, Perhaps you returned something you'd bought. Uh, It seemed okay at the time in the shop or on the screen, but the reality when you got home was somewhat different. It didn't fit. It was the wrong color. It didn't look that way on my phone screen. You changed your mind. And that was mildly annoying, but it led you to take action. You returned the item. Uh, There may have been a small cost uh, to that. Return postage or a trip into town or something similar. But it's the best outcome. No one wants to own something that they never use. Or perhaps it was something more serious. 
I've heard so many stories over the years like this one that I came across recently. A family decided to emigrate to the other side of the world. It's a hugely costly decision. They sold their house, they applied for visas and work, and began to anticipate a new life for schools, for the children, all the myriad things you do to disentangle from one culture and country and move across the world to another. Dad went out early to start work, but once he was there, nothing seemed right to him. So he came back, and they never emigrated. They changed their minds, and putting the change of mind into effect was costly and dispiriting and unsettling. But in the end, you hope for the family, it's the very best outcome to be miserable in a foreign land, far away from the familiar things of home, and particularly the bonds of family, would have been so much worse for them in the long term. It was good they changed their mind, even though it was costly. Well, this morning, we come to the start of Jesus' public ministry in Matthew 4. If you've been with us on the journey through Matthew so far, you'll know that in the first two chapters, we had Jesus' birth and infancy. Then we've leapt ahead, perhaps 25 or 30 years, to John the Baptist's preparatory ministry, to his baptism of Jesus, and then last week to the devil's unsuccessful temptation of Jesus. Well, now Jesus is ready to begin his public ministry. And his first message is this, Matthew 4, verse 17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. I still remember the first text that I preached on in this pulpit in September 2001, a special prize if you can remember that 22 years on, any of you who were here then and tell me afterwards. I was given a free choice by the then vicar and I chose it carefully to reflect themes that I considered then and consider today to be foundational for authentic Christian ministry. You choose your first words carefully. Well, how much more so, the Son of God? Uh, this is the headline text he chooses as he begins his ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Well, what does he mean by that? We'll uh, try and answer that first. And then we'll put this headline sentence into its context as we consider the wider passage in the second half of Matthew 4. The key word is repent. That is what he says we should do if we are to respond rightly to him. And it's one of those words whose literal meaning helps us to understand its real meaning. That doesn't always work with words. This is not a magic bullet fix. Uh, think of the word butterfly. You gain no useful insight into butterflies by noting that the word is made up of butter and fly. Whatever a butterfly is, it's not a lump of lard with wings. It doesn't always work. But it sometimes, indeed it often does. And that is the case with the Greek verb metanoeo that we translate to repent. It's made up of two words, meta meaning change. We have the English word metamorphosis when something changes its shape. So we have the word meta meaning change and nous meaning mind. So to repent is very literally to change your mind. Hopefully you can see why I got you thinking about changing your mind at the beginning of the sermon. 
And Jesus' first command to us here is to change our minds. And with those examples uh, perhaps uh, in mind earlier, uh, we've begun to think along the right lines. To change your mind involves taking action in line with your new conviction. Action which may well be costly, but which will lead to the best possible outcome if we will only take the long view. So what is it exactly that Jesus wants us to change our minds about? What action does he want us to take? What will be the better outcome? And what will be the cost of making that choice today? Well, if you've been with us in our series so far, you'll have noticed that Jesus' first words in his public ministry are identical to those of John the Baptist as he began his ministry and preparing the way for his successor, his cousin, the Lord Jesus, to whom John always pointed And John tells us in more detail what it means to repent in the light of the coming kingdom of heaven. So just turn back very briefly uh, with me over a page to Matthew chapter 3 and we'll see that. I know we looked at this in more detail a few weeks ago. So just briefly a recap uh, this morning. Matthew chapter 3 verse 1. In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, who looked ahead to John's ministry. John was the voice of the one calling in the desert. And he uses that voice to prepare the way for the Lord himself. In other words, John is saying, God is coming to visit his people in person. Now, Matthew has already told us, you'll remember the famous Christmas story, chapter 1, verse 24, uh, fulfilling another prophecy from Isaiah, that Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. So we can see the pieces coming together as we've read Matthew's story so far. Here is Jesus, God with us. Here is John, given the voice to say, I'm preparing the way for the Lord, for God coming to be with his people so when John preaches the kingdom of heaven is near, he means the Lord is about to arrive on the scene. I'm preparing the way for him. Emmanuel is coming. And then in chapter 3 verse 11 he says, After me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That is, he will bring God's very self and life into your hearts. And he will equip you and purify you to live for him. And so we come back to our passage. And when Jesus preaches the kingdom of heaven is near, he means the same thing. John was right. The Lord has arrived. God is here. The king of the kingdom of heaven is here in person, Jesus says. And it's me. And so now, as both Jesus and John agree, the first thing we must do is repent. That is, we need to change our minds about who's in charge because Jesus is the king. It's our sinful nature to live as though we were kings and queens. It's my life. It's my body. Uh, What I own is my stuff. I want to make my choices and think my own thoughts. I might not be so crass as to say it out loud, especially not in church, I am the Lord, but that is our default, unspoken creed. I decide what is right and wrong. I set the priorities. I choose the purposes and direction of my life. 
And now Jesus comes and says to us, you need to change your mind about who you think you are and who you think I am. Because heaven's true king has arrived. Your maker, your savior, your judge is standing before you. Emmanuel, come down from heaven to earth. And he looks you in the eye and says, you need to change your mind. You need to repent because the king is here. Now, again, we may ask, what does repentance look like? Uh, and again, just back in chapter 3, uh, John is so clear, perhaps uncomfortably so, uh, but Jesus has heard that. He's assuming this uh, as he reshapes that same command for us. Uh, look at chapter 3, verse 6. Repentance begins with the confession of our sins. All those ways in which we've lived as lords of our own lives, ignoring or disobeying God's word to us. And it really is the only wise choice to make. As John says in the next verse, chapter 3, verse 7, there is a coming wrath, or verse 12, an unquenchable fire. God's judgment is real and awful. And so we must repent. That is, we must be sorry for the ways in which we have lived as though we were the Lord and he was not. And though repentance begins in the mind and is expressed in our words, It must take root in our lives. Verse 8 of chapter 3, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, John says. Repentance must be lived out to be real. And he's picking up there on one of the Old Testament words uh, for repentance that has the sense of returning or turning around and going in a different direction. For a changed mind leads to a changed life with sorrow. And determination with the Lord's help, the Holy Spirit within, to begin to follow the king in his kingdom. Well, now we're ready to hear Jesus as he starts his ministry. He began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And we've seen how Jesus deliberately repeats and accepts John pointing to him as the king of heaven who was to come. And to call for this as the only right response. What kind of king is Jesus? And what kind of kingdom are we called to enter? That's where uh, we see Jesus repeating John's words. So we find the context in which they're set help us to answer some of those questions. Three things this morning. First, verses 12 to 16. King Jesus is light in our darkness. Light in our darkness. Every one of the gospel writers was an editor. None of them include everything. There'd be no point if they did. We just have one gospel. We have four uh, by the direction and wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Uh, But if you are trying to put them together, and because they are all ultimately authored by God, of course they do fit together. Well, then chapters 1 to 4 of John's gospel fit roughly between verses 11 and 12 of Matthew chapter 4. Matthew doesn't include uh, Jesus' earlier ministry that starts in Galilee, goes south to Judea, and then returns north again via Samaria. Rather, Matthew picks up the story again with Jesus' second period of ministry in Galilee. And the reason for his return now was John's arrest by Herod. Matthew will tell us uh, the full story later in chapter 14. Uh, For now, let's just say uh, that ours is not the first culture where it is costly for ministers of God's word to defend God's design for marriage in the public square 
against powerful cultural, political opposition. And we should be thankful that we have a great deal more freedom and safety for doing so than God did. Uh, But he was arrested and later executed for doing just that. I'll leave further application under that heading for another day. Well, it seems that Jesus, as he's gone back to Galilee, has had an initially hostile reaction too. Uh, Luke tells us that in Nazareth, uh, he uh, was uh, uh, chased from the synagogue in Nazareth as he preached his first sermon there. Uh, so he leaves and goes to live in Capernaum, which is by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. And as always in the purposes of God, uh, that which seems to be a reaction to some evil action of human beings turns out in the end to be part of the perfect plan of God to bring glory to his son and good to his people. For Zebulun and Naphtali were two of the ancient tribes of Israel, but on the far fringes of the kingdom. And because of the sin of God's ancient people, they had been deported. Others who did not know the Lord had been settled into their lands. And so the people of Zebulun and Naphtali were politically oppressed and spiritually corrupt. They were the spiritual equivalent of a desolate and dangerous sink estate in one of our more depressed and dispossessed communities. No one wanted to live there, least of all if they were serious about knowing God and his ways. It was a people living in darkness. Setting this quotation uh, that Matthew now brings us uh, from Isaiah in its original context from seven centuries earlier when the prophet had brought uh, his message just highlights how bleak it really was. The Assyrians had come bringing God's judgment on his wayward people. Uh, These were a people who openly despised the word of God and who listened to any voice as long as it wasn't God's. Let me read to you from a couple of verses before the ones Matthew quotes to give you that flavor. We've seen, haven't we, that Matthew intends us to understand the context from which he quotes these Old Testament passages that find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus. So here, from the end of Isaiah chapter 8 and into chapter 9, distressed and hungry, these are the people of Galilee, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, And looking upwards will curse their king and their God. They will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. People walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. Well, we could carry on. We'll stop there. Do you see what this means? When the king comes down from heaven, he doesn't start in Jerusalem with the great and the good and the religious. He starts on the margins. He goes to the people uh, who would never have imagined, and with good reason, that they mattered to God. They were outsiders in every way. It didn't really matter to anyone else, they might have thought. So since they had nothing of any worth to offer to God, 
Did their lives really have any value at all? Perhaps that rings a bell for some of you. Perhaps you're here this morning uh, conscious of the darkness of your own soul, of your own life in these days. Well, Jesus comes to you. He comes as a great light to those who've made a mess, who have nothing to offer and who have been excluded by others and they fear ultimately by him as well. It's for you and to you that he came. And it wasn't just to those who were geographically far away or who were unfortunate victims of an unfair world. Jesus went to people who cursed God and deserved judgment. He went to people whose lives really were dark, even though at least in part some of their darkness was self-inflicted. He goes to the Gentiles, to people who had no call on the covenant with Moses or membership of the historic people of God, no claim of the, on the king of Israel, but he's the king of heaven. And he comes for them, and he comes for you, and he comes for me. And he doesn't come in judgment, but in grace. So to anyone who knows what it is to be in gloom and distress and darkness and death, King Jesus brings the light of life, of hope, of acceptance, of forgiveness, of a new beginning. Yes, even for you, Jesus comes to be light. In him and his kingdom is a new and lasting joy that breaks into and overturns even the deepest despair. Friends, will you repent to receive that? This is good news. Second, verses 18 to 22, Jesus, King Jesus calls us to follow and to fish. In two very similar incidents in these verses, Jesus calls uh, two pairs of brothers, Simon and Andrew and James and John. Simon and Andrew had already earlier started following Jesus. John tells, that, uh, tells us that in his gospel. Uh, they seem to have followed for a bit and then gone back to their day jobs for a season. And uh, we know that all the apostles did that after the resurrection for a little while. Uh, but it probably explains, at least in part, why they were so quick to come and follow Jesus again here. But whatever the backstory, it's worth seeing what Jesus does because it's what he still does today. He calls us to follow, and he calls us to fish. All four of these men were uh, professional fishermen, not day anglers. That's one of the things I can't understand about the English at all. uh, Because when you go fishing, uh, and I know some of you love this, so please don't be offended, but you you spend all day uh, in the tent, in the rain, uh, you catch the poor fish, and then put it back. Now, I have to say, as someone who grew up in part on Queensland's Gold Coast, uh, when we went fishing, uh, fishing for great fresh, white, uh, whiting, uh, full of flesh and wonderful when grandma had cooked them at the end of the day. We weren't putting them back, and nor were we sitting in tents uh, by a mouldy river in the north of England. But there we go. So I have a different uh, feeling about fishing. But either way, these were not amateurs, you see. These men were professionals. This is how they earned their living, as did many of those who lived around uh, the Lake uh, of Galilee uh, and Capernaum. Uh, could in very rough terms uh, be translated as Fisher Town. So it, this was the, uh, the industry uh, that these men worked in. It wasn't uh, just an amateur activity. Uh, and so uh, when Jesus says, come and follow me, he's making an enormous 
demand. Lay down your day job. Uh, put down your tools uh, for those what their nets uh, and their boats were. This was not their leisure activity. And of course their ministry was unique. Jesus established his band of apostles who travelled with him and who became his authorised spokesman for him after he returned to heaven. And we're not apostles. But I didn't say in the very last verse of our reading that the crowds followed him too. So yes, there's a sense in which some perhaps are called to set aside secular employment and we still have some in the church who are called to that. But all of us are called to come and follow Jesus, that's what it means in part to repent and receive his kingdom. And Jesus is not physically here, so we can't literally follow him like that. But of course we can follow him by repenting, by thinking again about him and choosing to respond positively to his call to let him be the Lord of our lives and to entrust to him all that darkness of our sin and our suffering that he might be the one to whom we look for healing and light. And there is a cost to that. As we've seen already, these men left their nets. The second two left the boat and their father. And although not all are called to lay down their secular livelihoods today, to turn and follow Jesus does mean that he is now first, that there is a new loyalty uh, that certainly comes ahead of our commitments in the secular world And comes ahead even of that to our natural families. Jesus will teach more on that later in this gospel. Sometime later Peter said to Jesus, somewhat plaintively I think, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said on that occasion, it's in chapter 19, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you have followed me, will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or fields, for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much, and will receive eternal life. King Jesus calls us to follow, to make him the number one priority in our lives. But he is no man's debtor as he does so. He calls us to lay down that which is most precious to us. But very often we then are able to receive it back again with thanksgiving. And in any case, always, his promise is there to multiply to our eternal blessing anything that we have laid down in order to follow him. What I'm saying is this, our Christianity must be more than skin deep, more than our church going and our outward forms of piety. He really means us to lay down everything in order to follow him. And he delights to give his all to us as we do so. King Jesus calls us personally to follow him, not literally around Palestine, but practically in all things. He's not just our Lord that we sing to on Sundays, but on Mondays as well. And therefore the way in which we go about our daily uh, jobs on a Monday morning or, or exercise our relationships beyond the family of the church must reflect that we are followers of Jesus just as much as when we're here and with one another. It's not just the words we use here, it's when we open our mouths out of church that is a far better uh, revelation really of whom we are following. We follow him when we listen to his word, 
and do what it says. We follow him, yes, as we gather with his other followers to uh, praise him and learn from him and pray to him. But we follow him in every area of our lives. And part of that following means being committed to fishing in his name as well. Come follow me, Jesus says, and I will make you fishers of men. Perhaps we sort of hope that's for the apostles or at least the full-timers. But it really is for all of us. You know Jesus' last words in this gospel. Go and make disciples of all nations. His charge to all of his disciples. And many of us will feel inadequate to the task. If we don't, we probably just haven't tried it recently. But the king of heaven has commanded all people everywhere to repent. And he's given us uh, this precious good news that he is the one who alone can bring the light of life into us who dwell in a land of darkness and death. How can we keep that to ourselves? So let me make it practical. Who are you going to invite to a carol service in the next couple of weeks so that you can bring them here to St. John's that they might hear this gospel for themselves? How will you reply to the person who asks you over the coffee machine why you bother with church and faith and all that religious stuff in this secular age? What could you do in one of the many ministries, and we're always crying out for more helpers, in which we seek to fish for people together as a church family, people of all ages, to come and know and follow King Jesus for themselves? Or third, verses 23 to 25. Jesus, King Jesus serves us in word and deed. Matthew paints a broad brush picture of Jesus' ministry in this paragraph. He gives a sense of its dimensions and frankly they're breathless. We have a sense of the breadth of the geography of Jesus' ministry. Here is north and south, east and west, Jew and Gentile. Galilee alone we know from contemporary accounts was densely populated with over 200 uh, towns in around 3,000 square miles, with perhaps as many as 3 million people, uh, according to one ancient historian, who is known for exaggerating. So it may not have been quite that much, but certainly millions. And Jesus, Matthew, simply tells us in three words, went throughout Galilee. Uh, And, of course, for geography, read people. Jesus wanted everyone to receive an invitation into his kingdom, including you and including the people of Hartford. We're introduced to the scope of his activity, teaching as he expounds the scriptures in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of his kingdom out and about. He wants us to listen to his word, to grow in our knowledge and love of him through it, and then to share it with others. Of course, inseparable from his teaching and preaching was his healing every disease and sickness among the people. So perhaps above all, we glimpse the depth of Jesus' limitless compassion. People brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. These healings, on one level, authenticated his claim to be the king of heaven and the lord of all creation, but more than that, they reveal his loving heart, and as such, they encourage us to trust him with our illness and our pain and our oppression, with all our burdens and all our anxieties, to cast them upon him. As Isaiah says, he was both pierced for our transgressions and took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. 
So friends, will you let Jesus serve you? There is no exhausting his capacity to save. Let him teach you his word. It is the word of life. And come to him in your sin and your sorrow and your sickness and lay it all upon him. For that is why the king of heaven came. He came so that we might not remain in the darkness, but rather come into his light. He calls us to follow him and to fish for him. He came to serve us. This is our gospel. Not try harder, be more religious, but trust him, yield to him. Let him serve and save you because salvation is his work, not ours. All we need to do is repent and to put our trust in him. So will you change your mind? Now the king in God's kingdom has arrived. Truly, as Paul says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Friends, let that be the work of God's word and spirit in our lives today. Do not harden your hearts against Jesus' call to repent, as many in his own day did. He warned them, and he warns us later in this gospel, chapter 12, verse 41, that the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the teaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. Infinitely greater than Jonah in power and in compassion. So, friends, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in some ways, for some of us at least, these words are familiar, and yet how full of power and convicting uh, energy they are for us today. Lord, please would you bring us, perhaps for the first time, perhaps afresh or more deeply, to repentance, to change our minds, to yield all to you. Lord, we lay on you all of our sin, all of our sickness, all of the darkness, that so fills our lives. Please would you flood us with your light. Save us, Lord, and send us out from this place with our lips ready to speak of the truth of the only one who can bring life from death, light into darkness. Grow your kingdom here and bring to us true repentance and your Holy Spirit. For we ask it to your Father's glory.